When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And from Alpha, City of a Thousand Planets, I'm Adam Kempinar. Population? Almost 30 million. 3,236 species from the four corners of the universe live on board, pooling their knowledge and cultures. Over 5,000 languages spoken, not counting the various computer languages. Director Luc Besson has never been short on ambition. He's the Frenchman behind sci-fi extravaganzas of the Fifth Element and 2014's Lucy, along with 90s shoot-'em-ups, The Professional and La Femme Nikita. But his $200 million bet on the intergalactic circus that is Valerian in the City of a Thousand Planets is his biggest gamble yet. And of course, no circus is complete without a character named Jolly the Pimp. Played by Ethan Hawke, no less. Our review of Bassan's Valerian Plus, our top five alien worlds, and more. All ahead on Film Spotting. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Just in case you're listening to the start of this show and you're asking yourself, didn't Dunkirk come out last weekend? Why aren't you guys reviewing that? We did review Dunkirk last week on the show, actually came right from the theater and tried to process that on air and discuss it. And for the record, we both like Dunkirk a lot. In fact, Josh, I remember you bemoaning going into our top five films of the year so far that you didn't have a single movie yet this year that you'd given four out of four stars. Yeah. And if I saw correctly, Dunkirk was the first. So of even course, though the day after we record right. the top five, yeah, and we, we even, see that. We even put Dunkirk at the end of that episode so we could come right out and say it if it happened that Dunkirk would make our list or in fact be at the top of the list. And then we never said that somehow. I'm not sure why, but officially, it would be your number one it would officially. Be mine. Yes. And it would be mine as well. And lest people are bored by that because the movie has received overwhelming praise. I guess we should point out that producer Sam Van Hogren oh, yeah. issued one of the contrarian, I think it was negative, right? Didn't he go two out of five on Letterboxd? Maybe. Today? I haven't actually seen the Letterboxd review. He so, just Which I believe qualifies as negative. If yeah. you're looking for that other opinion, <laughs> Sam Van Hogren on nah, Letterboxd. Yeah, it's best ignored. <laughs> this week on the show, it's Luke Passan's Valerian and the City of a Thousand Jolly the Pimps, plus our top five alien worlds. We were originally calling it Sci-Fi Visions, but listener David Hoffman chimed in on Twitter with this alternative and we think much more descriptive title. We will get to the criteria if, in fact, one of us came up with any criteria later in the show. 
But first, yes, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets features Hawk briefly as Jolly the Pimp. I think, was that a Candyland character? If so, very inappropriate. <laughs> I didn't have that version. The movie also has Rihanna briefly as a shape-shifting alien pole dancer and Clive Owen as a nefarious military commander. So, it's something. But is it anything good? Welcome to Alpha, the city of a thousand planets. After centuries of peace and prosperity, an unknown force wants to destroy all we have created. Agents Valerian and Laureline, you have less than 10 hours to find the threat and eliminate it. Had to get to work. Josh, if we end up wanting to blame anyone for having to discuss Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, the latest from Luc Besson, set in the 28th century, starring Dane DeHaan as the title character Valerian and Cara Delevingne as Laureline. They're a pair of special agents, special government operatives who, well, I'm not really Why are you sure, so unsure about what all they this? have to do. It's very well, clear, we'll to, We will get to the clarity of the plot here in a moment, but they basically get assigned to track down where some mysterious force is coming from that may be destroying <laughs> so glad this, amazing, this, <laughs> this amazing city of a thousand planets. If we have anyone to blame for me, having to try to describe the plot of this movie, we can look to our listeners, at least in part, because about eight episodes ago, we shared the results of a film spotting poll question where we asked this, these summer 2017 movies don't look good. Which one are we probably underestimating? And we vowed that we would more than likely talk about whichever movie won that poll and win it. Valerian did beating out Baywatch, King Arthur, The Mummy, Pirates of the Caribbean 27, Curse of the Dead Man's Tides, and the option... I don't think that's right either. Oh, okay, sorry. I'll just have to check my notes here on that. And the other option, no, it's fine. You can skip these. 30% of the vote, Valerian won that poll with. And we heard from and shared the comments from Jen in Chicago, who said, you got to give Valerian a chance. I mean, it could be terrible, but it will be a glorious, messy, creative explosion kind of terrible. Bassan is unpredictable, but his passion for movies and his enthusiasm shines through in all his projects. Whatever that mad Frenchman cooks up, I'll give it a taste. In a sea of sequels and safe bets, don't you want to try something original? So the question here for you, Josh, is simple enough. Was Valerian just terrible? Or was it a glorious, messy, creative explosion kind of terrible. <laughs> um, it has elements of gloriousness and creativity and messiness, and there are some explosions. I guess I'm glad I saw it. I don't think it really comes together or works in the way that I've seen some people defending it, uh, which I responded early negatively and actually got a lot of defense of the film. Hmm. So I was surprised by that because if you look at genuine critic scores and certainly the box office, it has not fared all that well. So some people are appreciating it on that messiness continuum. And I think that's maybe an interesting place to start is why are we willing to be forgiving in certain instances and unforgiving in others for movies that are creatively messy. And mm -hmm. I'm asking that of myself yeah, as you're well. Guilty because of I've, that cert too. I've certainly defended movies that people think are insane messes. I guess what held me back in this instance is that I just never got on board with the fun. I could see that it's there. Bassan 
absolutely brings verve to his filmmaking. But this is closer on the clarity trajectory in terms of the action and the logistics to a Michael Bay Transformers movie. Closer. Not that chaotic and incomprehensible. Mm -hmm. But it's more on that end than something that is, oh, maybe even like, Speed Racer and another other people defend this more than me, but another loony movie that has its uh, its fervid defenders. You know, this this is somewhere the scenes just don't work that I'm supposed to get on board of because of the basic action filmmaking messiness. And that happens in an early sequence that isn't even set on Alpha, this space station where most of the movie does eventually take place that involves virtual reality, different dimensions. And I loved the ambition. It didn't work for you? I couldn't tell what the heck was really? going on. Absolutely oh. not. No. I, and, and that That's was the most inspired sequence in the film I, by I, far. Well, like I said, it's inspired in what they're attempting to do, but I could not follow exactly what dimension each character was in. I know it was supposed to be, it's essentially a planet that these two main characters are visiting to pull off some sort of mission, retrieve um, an artifact, and all the tourists go to this planet because it's a virtual reality market. It's called mm -hmm. Big Market, I believe. Yeah, it is. Yeah. You put glasses on, so, you actually enter yeah. kind of another dimension. Right. I got that. But once we moved in there and there were instances where part of Valerian was in one dimension but not another, that seemed to add another wrinkle. And it becomes a Looney Tunes cartoon, which I'm all on board for as long as I have my bearings. Maybe it was me. Maybe I didn't pay close enough attention. Huh. I've heard from other folks who said, oh, it was crystal clear yeah. to me. Maybe it was to you. But at that point, it was kind of off where what happens. OK, so the bottom line is what happens is everything becomes inconsequential. It's the way we've talked about uh, CGI effects and we need to have them rooted in something, a sense that there is an actual physical space being occupied here and that there are consequences for what mm -hmm. is going to happen to these characters. And in that early sequence, right away, those things were broken for me. And it becomes even further, it's rooted less in reality once we get to Alpha. Hmm. I didn't have that reaction at all to that sequence. And I guess, in fact, my overall really positive, enthusiastic reaction to that big market sequence is maybe why overall I did have more fun with this movie than you. I felt like I always knew what was going on in the space, even setting up early characters and situations like the guy who somehow has mind control over the character who's in a security tower and how that factors back mm -hmm. in. And then other things, too, when Valerian is kind of stuck between these two worlds and a creature, a large creature of some kind, not the big creature that ends the sequence, but some kind of dog or something is running at him and he escapes at the last minute. I felt the suspense of that. I felt the suspense of them in that makeshift school bus trying to get away from that giant sure. thing. So the physical space somehow there and the stakes, if you will, of it were present for but me. But take that dog creature sequence. I understand their suspense because there's a dog approaching him and I understand that his hand is in one dimension and his body is in another. But we've never really understood how that plays with virtual reality. So are we talking about interdimensionality here plus mm -hmm. virtual reality? That's fine if we are, but then that all needs to be laid out. Okay. In other words, for me, Bassan was just like, wouldn't it be cool if his hand was in one place 
and his body was in another and a dog was coming after him. Now, part of the problem might be that this is pulled from or adapted from the comic book series Valerian and Loreline. And maybe there, that's an exact sequence. I wished I had had time to track that down and see. And so Bassan is kind of lifting it and it's more explained Mm -hmm. on the page, perhaps. Maybe. I mean, there's no point obviously, in trying to dissect it, I will say it was always clear to me that Valerian was always physically in the world of this kind of desert space where he's right next to his partner. But as long as he has those glasses on or whatever he was wearing, he's also in this virtual space. So two things can happen to him in two different spaces. And I felt like that was fairly clear. This is going to be tough, though, for this segment, Josh, because it's clear you really didn't go for this movie at all, and I would love to defend it and turn this into a good old-fashioned showdown, but I just don't have the energy to muster too much passion for a film that, I will admit, I forgot the second I walked out of the theater. So <laughs> I won't be able to turn this into a good knockdown, dragout fight. Despite my difficulty kind of setting up the plot of the film, it goes in a lot of different directions, and there are a lot of characters. We'll talk about that in a little bit more detail. I guess for a movie, it was a matter of expectations for a film that I knew our friend David Ehrlich, and we'd read that comment about being on meth and all these things. Like, I really thought this film was going to make no sense at all. And in terms of basic storytelling, who those characters are, the main character certainly, what they're after— That was all in place. I mean, there's even resolution and all the things that you'd expect with any type of sort of conventional movie storyline. And I don't think the plot is that difficult to summarize as maybe some would have you believe. But maybe it was just about the headspace I was in, too, where I saw it in the middle of the day on a Sunday long weekend, desperate need of sleep. And I know that I didn't actually fall asleep at any point watching the film, but there was an extended period, and I say extended, maybe five to ten minutes, where I was in that in-between state where I was totally aware (laughs) of what was happening on screen, eyes wide open, but also feeling like I was dreaming. Not fully engaged, yeah. No, no, I really was, Josh. And I think that's probably the best state to see this movie in, where it does all kind of feel like a dream. Obviously, I defended the big market sequence. Mule, the planet that we see early on, even before that, where it's this sort of utopian existence, really one of the case studies, I think, maybe for our eventual top five in the show, Alien Worlds, mm-hmm. in terms of a vision being brought to life, something you feel like you've never seen before, a world where once you're put in it as a viewer, you don't want to leave. That I thought was pretty astounding. But I will ultimately say this, for all its craziness and the pure spectacle of it, The most surprising thing to me, the one thing I couldn't shake at the end of the movie is how oddly personal the film seemed to be. And there is a dedication at the end of the film to Bassan's father. But well before that, I was struck by a couple of things. First, just how much genuine glee for me comes through from scene to scene, from character to character, setting to setting. I don't think you can argue that Bassan is just checking boxes here or he's coming up with a widget for mass consumption. If he is, he failed badly, not only because it's just not that type of film ultimately on the screen. And as you noted, it was a huge, huge flop. But this does feel very much like the work of someone whose biggest sin is simply self-indulgence. He just can't resist introducing that strange-looking character and showing us that cool gadget and taking us to this weird place. And then after he's done that, he's going to show us 17 more of those things. And Mm -hmm. I can respect that. And somehow I did ultimately get on board with it in 
a minor way. Yeah. I mean, there's an enthusiasm. There's a um, certainly a passion behind the movie. And you'd definitely rather see something from a director like that than a soulless piece of machinery. I guess I was looking for more. All that stuff is great, mm -hmm. but some more continuity and context and connection among it all would be really helpful. I think the planet mule you mentioned is an arresting vision and one of the really great details. This movie is stuffed with fascinating visual details, as you've described. Mm -hmm. When those spacecrafts crash onto that planet mule, which is like a, a beach, essentially, it's like a Caribbean paradise, but the whole planet is like that. And these smoky crashing ships puncture this pristine blue an amazing image, right? Mm -hmm. Also on Big Market, I love how the clouds in the sky are cotton candy colored. You know, just this little detail in the background. So a lot of craft and a lot of care is given to this film. And I wish I could have hooked myself onto that more, but it almost felt like we were rushing from one thing to the next. Like I've, I've described it as being inside a pinball machine. You just get bounced around and the problem is eventually, especially on Alpha, this space station where all sorts of species have created their own little versions of their worlds. And Valerian spends a lot of time crashing through walls from one to the other. And that was especially the point where all consequence was lost. He could fall into any world. He could fall down huge spaces and everything was always okay. And, and this is one of those instances where the possibilities, the endless possibilities of CGI creation end up being um, restricting. They end up being claustrophobic because it just ties us into this boring world of nothingness of no mm -hmm. consequence and i feel like that was a problem i you know the plot i laughed at the beginning but it's all you need i wasn't right. it's not confusing it's just i i kind of chuckled because it is such a clothesline setup it's like this basic idea we need to hang all this spectacle yes. on and that's fine I can go with that as long as you can lead me in an intriguing way from spectacle to spectacle instead of bounce me around like I felt I was being bounced around by this movie. Yeah, well, that's what's keeping it from being, I think, a great movie. But in terms of a fairly amusing diversion, I think that's definitely the experience that I had with the movie. And I think for me, I'm trying to think of the unpredictability almost to it, the sense of being thrust moment to moment into another world into another dimension, never knowing really what was going to be around that next corner, even if it didn't in some ways make logical sense. I think that's what I actually appreciated about the experience of watching this movie. And I think that had it been a little more restrained, had it been a film that had more continuity, maybe taken itself more seriously, perhaps you end up with something far worse than this in my mind, which is a movie like Jupiter Ascending, where hmm. it's got a lot of the same spectacle, but does take itself way too seriously and in some ways becomes far more laughable than something like Valerian does. Yeah, there is there's a certain self-awareness to that movie, maybe not a lot. Um, I, I would put them on a fairly similar plane. But let me ask you this. OK, what if you had more continuity? We can ask, what if you had two characters that registered at all yeah, besides pinballs? That'd go a long I, way. I think that's that's a very troubling aspect at the center of this movie that you have Dehan and you have Delavine in this dynamic they're clearly trying for. It's very much a Han and Leia glib, antagonistic, but flirty dynamic. Almost a screwball comedy type banter. Maybe that's what they're going for. I think But it is, you never yeah. get what's 
below all of those relationships, no. those iconic relationships, which is the genuine emotion and tension. And Dahan's an interesting actor. You know, I, I just watched A Cure for Wellness. I don't know if I'd say that after watching Valerian in The City of a Thousand <laughs> no, it, Planets, but right. I've liked him before. That's what was compelling to me is because I have seen him so recently in the Gore Verbinski movie, another one that, you know, here's a crazy loony one that I will defend. I, I, I watched it hoping it would make my top five of the year. Not quite that nuts about it, but I think there are good things about it. And Dahan is one of the interesting things, playing this sickly workaholic guy who ends up at this bizarre spa resort in Switzerland for workaholics. And there he holds the screen. He's, you know, not a conventionally... I don't know if you want to say handsome, but he he's not like – you don't see him and say star. There's a movie star. No, you don't. Right? But there's something interesting about him. That vanishes here. It's like it's been wiped away. There's there, It's like it's been CGI'd off him. Um, Delavine, I'm unfamiliar with. And it's not so much that she's bland because there are moments where she has mm-hmm. some spark – and verve again i'll use that word but they're so inconsistent and they almost switch personalities for most of the film i'm thinking okay he's kind of the fly by the seat of his pants rebel and she's there to rein him in to do her right. duty and then they have this encounter in the finale where he's he suddenly says you know i follow all the rules mm-hmm. and, and she acts like she has a wild streak and I just wondered if they'd seen the previous two hours. This is also two hours and 20 minutes, we should know. I guess that little turn, if you will, didn't feel quite that inconsistent to me with their characters. But I'm with you on Dahan. And let's face it, he is doing here in every moment, in every line reading, the best slash worst Keanu Reeves impression he can do. First actor that came to mind. He's just channeling him the entire film. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Easy, easy. We're late. Yeah, well, better late than dead. You want to drive? Whoa, put, put your hand back on the joystick. Lorleen, put your hands back on the joystick. Lorleen, will you please put your hand back on the joystick? Will you stop complaining about my driving? Yes, I'm sorry. You're a great driver. You're the best driver in the entire universe. Oh, thank you. I now don't remember what Dahan sounds like. Yeah, I mean, just every line. Right. It's really that he's close. Not it's that like far he's doing off. an impression. Like, in A Cure for Wellness, you can see he has that kind of monotone, and it's, okay. you know, but this is like intentional. Like okay. he's going it for seems Matrix. that way. Yeah. You're right. And like I said, I haven't seen enough of his work. And the last thing I saw him in, I'm thinking, was maybe The Place Beyond the Pines. And I don't really remember how he is in that film. I don't remember thinking he's doing a Keanu Reeves impression. Right. That made this very difficult to watch. Of course, it doesn't help that the dialogue is often as bad as it is in this film. I mean, there's a moment, for example, early on where Herbie Hancock and hey, I love jazz, so I love Herbie Hancock, plus he went to my alma mater, so I'm a huge Herbie Hancock fan, but he's not an actor, and even when he appears on screen here in this film, which he does, I think, the entire time just through some kind of monitor, a visual display, his line readings are awful, but I digress. The dialogue itself, there's a moment where Hancock comes on the screen and basically chides them for being 20 minutes late to something, and he actually says, yeah, well... Time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> I mean, the least inspired, <laughs> most yeah, cliche yeah. line in the history of movies. I mean, really, that that's what you came up with. I was hoping for a little bit more witty repartee there, and I didn't get it. I'm going to say this, though. I actually really like Delavine. And no, I don't know her. I don't know what else I've seen her in, if anything. But I think she brings the right sense of humor mixed with the right little bit of gravitas. And the banter between them 
works as well as it does in some moments, I think only because of her, certainly not because of anything that Dahan is doing. Yeah. I actually really felt, yeah, she does. I felt like I'm not sure why this movie was called Valerian in the city of a thousand planets and why it couldn't have just been called Laureline in the city of a thousand planets. She's by far the more captivating character and gives the much better performance. But I think maybe this all comes back to in some way, the one thing I'm going to bring up that I will just tell you, you're going to roll your eyes. That's fine. Bring it. I don't have though a perfect case to make for this. I'm just going to tell you what I did experience while I was watching it. As much as this film would benefit from an actor like Keanu Reeves playing the role, as opposed to someone doing a poor man's Keanu impression, I do think that, it would detract from one thing that Bassan seems intent on trying to play with a little bit here in this movie, which is kind of the gender expectations and how they fit in with this type of action superhero movie. Because Keanu, I mean, he comes off in every movie he's in. He's he's a man. He's a star. He is a star mm-hmm. that you're talking about. And Dahan is a very... He's an interesting presence, but he is not this sort of macho in any way movie star, I would argue. And there does seem to be something with the storyline here. It's very simple on the surface about a man, in this case, Dahan, being afraid to commit. He claims to be in love with her, but he's not ready to kind of turn himself over to her completely. But more than that, there were various times in the movie, Josh, where this idea of identity got brought up. Specifically, it's with the Rihanna character, and let's say she's got a pretty good pole dancing sequence but otherwise at least in this film not an actress i mean she she really has some tough lines with that dialogue and with her readings but she is a presence and there's identity in the way it relates to her character and how that comes back to relate i think to valerian but he is this as i said unmasculine lead in a way who does actually have a woman's soul inside him. That's a part of the story. And there's a lot of discussion about kind of what defines you as this type of man. And I think that you see that in the way he plays off the Laureline character. And so there's something that comes up beyond those two characters in terms of the way Bassan handles gender roles that I think is at least worth talking about. Because the characters, for example, that come from Mule, the emperor or whatever they call him kind of their leader seems to me to have a very Kate Blanchett-esque female yeah, voice. Yeah, I would say and they're it's, an it's androgynous really difficult. species. Yeah, they're yeah. androgynous. It's difficult to tell even though they seem to have a male-female dynamic between them. That actually doesn't come through in the way they physically look. I swear at one point in the same scene one character refers to one of the characters as a he and another character calls that same he a she it's just not something that the movie seems that concerned with in terms of identifying those labels if you will really clearly and i even think back to the very opening of this film which i really appreciated the beginning of this movie which is set to david bowie ground control to major tom and we see kind of the present day and people docking actually i think maybe even before the present day space station and different nationalities different groups of astronauts meet each other and shake hands and embrace alien species i remember when it jumped ahead a couple decades or Mm -hmm. something i thought well that doesn't look really that inventive or that doesn't look that new like basan has somehow failed and then i realized oh they're going to cover centuries right that was the whole point is that that. it didn't seem that different but i thought it grounded the film in a way before it really gets lost in all this spectacle in our history but it also did something for me which was it grounded this idea of scene after scene of men 
shaking hands with each other, embracing each other. And then as the time goes on, as the centuries go on, all of a sudden we see that evolve into a point where you really can't tell what gender any of these creatures are anymore who are embracing each other the way those early men are. And so it's it's almost as if Bassan is at least playing with this idea of these groups of people evolving into a point where gender is essentially meaningless. I thought that was interesting. Well, okay. I I wouldn't say I found much to critique in terms of the gender roles and how they're handled here. I can understand if people did, though, mm-hmm. because there are some odd interplay. You mentioned some of them, and that could go one way or it could go the other. So uh, I didn't really find it much to champion either along the lines you're talking about. Here's my guess. Again, Mm -hmm. haven't seen the original comics. I wonder if they explore that a lot more deeply and pay a lot more attention to it. And it's kind of hung on to the screenplay and gotten into the text of the film. Not, you know, because it's something Bassan maybe was partly interested in, but this movie does have a lot of, if you look at some of his other films, the same touches, which kind of work against this idea of a genderless future. Mm-hmm. He's always favored actresses who look very much like Delavine. Mia Jovovich, he worked with a couple of times, even in something like Angel A, this skinny supermodel vision of women. I think that's something that's being absolutely still emphasized in Valerian. So it does make me wonder how much of that is coming from the source material and maybe in good ways seeps through onto the screen and how much is really meant to be there because there are other elements that do work a little against it. Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets is currently playing in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with us, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. Did Keanu Reeves, speaking of Keanu, stage a comeback in his death match against Charlize Theron? We have the results of the film spotting poll next, along with a new question concerning Steven Soderbergh's acting MVP. Stay with us. folks just a quick thank you donation segment here and we start with a thank you from josh i'm a little bit disappointed that you were revamping the larson on film website and despite all the amazing work i put into the new film spotting squarespace powered site yeah no did you come to me i mean i would have said no because who's got time for that right but you know you didn't even think about coming to me no you went outside and you went to a group that you've used before and i know you want to thank them Yeah, I've been working with Cultivate Studios. They're right here in Chicago since I first launched my site, which I think was 05 or 06. It's it's been a while now. Um, These are some guys, they attended the same college I did here in the Chicago area, Trinity Christian College, and they do great work. And it was time for a revamp, you know, like the film spotting site needed to get on board with the fact that most people are looking at these things on their phones. So Cultivate Studios, they helped me do that. 2,500 reviews, man, you want to feel old. (laughs) 
That's what you can find there now on the site. You can search them by star rating, genre, or year. This is all at LarsonOnFilm.com. So most of the stuff we talk about on the show, I write a review for as well. It's just kind of how I process. So you can check those out. Probably one of the more popular features, though, shockingly, I'm Can't sure, imagine. is the Why I'm Wrong page, which I've had for years. I mean, this is one of the first things we came up with when I started working with Cultivate. And it's just a chance for people to write in and say, man, you're nuts, which, you know, happens Every once in a while. I hate to break it to you. On rare occasions. I hate to break it to you, but for the last five years, they are all just me with aliases. <laughs> I was suspicious. The tone sounded very familiar. Yeah. Maybe Valerian. If, if you've got a Valerian, if you're enthusiastic, more enthusiastic yeah. than even yeah. Adam about Valerian, send it to me at LarsonOnFilm.com. I'll put it up on the Why I'm Wrong page. <laughs> okay. A couple of thank yous here from people who sent some of their hard-earned cash our way in support of the show. A new Silver Club donor, Derek B. from Parts Unknown, and two new $5 a month subscribers, Patrick M. in L.A. and Vanessa from nearby Des Plaines, Illinois. We also have a brand new platform. Club donor. He is Garrett S. So if you're not a donor, but you want to help out the show, here's a very easy way. No cost. Just rate or review us on Apple Podcasts. Every five-star rating, really every review, no matter what you say, it'll help us reach new listeners. So take a few moments out to do that. Here's some who have helped us out in this way. La Frenchie de Brooklyn, Justin Sayan, Ange Cattell, Jarf27, Ethan A. Brooks, and Corby D.W. DeJarf, 27, Adam. Yeah. I don't want to spoil anything, but he's number seven on my alien worlds list. Ah. I don't care if it rains or freezes as long as I've got a plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. One of the all-time greats and one of the all-time great films, Paul Newman in 1967's Cool Hand Luke. Currently the only film from 1967 which is in the film spotting pantheon, which is a little surprising considering some of the films that came out 50 years ago this year. It's a year we're going to revisit next week on the show with our top five films of 1967, along with a review of Catherine Bigelow's Detroit, which itself looks back to 67, specifically the riots that took place in that city in response to a deadly police raid. So 67, basically the year of Paul Newman. I mean, everyone remembers Cool Hand Luke. I love Ombre, another film from that year oh, yeah. that he we made. We both watched that in preparation for What was that something. for? I don't, I don't remember rem- what list I, it was. Such a good movie. I mean, there's a chance... On my top five, I'll have two Paul Newman movies, which isn't a bad thing. Well, you're going to include Cool Hand Luke, I guess, because the Pantheon well, the does not fives, apply with I know, our We kind of let it apply year by year these list. year by year, Yeah, don't we, we do. Yeah, okay. so we'll see what happens. You are essentially what I'm worried about, and mm-hmm. I haven't started looking at the list yet, but I know from the new Hollywood marathon we did here on Film Spotting many years ago, and from the class I taught on the new Hollywood at the University of Chicago's Graham School that was all based on Mark Harris's book, Pictures at a Revolution, which looks at the five best picture nominees from 1968. So that would have been the mm-hmm. cinema year, 67, that it's an amazing year. You've got The Graduate, Bonnie and Clyde, In the Heat of the Night, which I love. Those three are the big three for me. But then, guess who's coming to dinner? And finally, Dr. Little, but we're talking about some all-time great films there. Throw in Cool Hand Luke, and I'm worried about the list being 
a little bit conventional and boring? Well, a lot of times that sort of happens with our year-by-year list. Mm -hmm. You are looking at these classics and hopefully getting a chance to revisit them and see if they held up. I have a few not among those you just mentioned that are in strong contention, though, so that might shake things up a little bit. And as always, hope to catch up with some I have not yet seen. Do you have a favorite film from 1967? Maybe one you're afraid we'll overlook? Maybe it's even Dr. Doolittle. You can leave us a voicemail and we may use it on next week's show. That number is 312-264-0744 or just send us an MP3 file, feedback at filmspotting.net. We have some movie passes to give away, Josh, and we were hoping that we would end up talking about The Dark Tower on next week's episode as it is coming out on August 4th, but... We're not going to be able to see it in enough time to discuss it and tape the show. We do have movie passes to give away to see The Dark Tower, though, on August 2nd. So that's Wednesday, August 2nd here in Chicago. We also have passes to give away to The Glass Castle based on the Jeanette Walls 2005 memoir. That screening is August 8th. And a new one we added, The Only Living Boy in New York. And I'm sure there may be a few more even by the time you hear this and you check out our page, filmspotting.net slash events. Filmspotting.net slash events is where we post all our giveaways and other contests. I'm not going to lie. I'm impressed. You've got some balls breaking in here. You should see my balls, then you'd be really impressed. Hmm. I'll take your word for it. My guy, James McAvoy, with Charlize Theron and that scene from Atomic Blonde. Blonde opens this weekend, and the response so far is comparable to the movie it will inevitably be compared to. That's 2014's John Wick with Here He Is Again, Keanu Reeves. Blonde, of course, directed by one half of the team behind John Wick, David Leach. Atomic Blonde currently has a 69 on Metacritic, and that actually tops just slightly, Josh, the original Wick with a score of 68. We devoted a little bit of our attention to John Wick and John Wick 2 earlier this year. Actually did a sacred cow on Keanu and John Wick. That's kind of funny to me now. It is. We did a, and that surprises me as well that the original John Wick doesn't have a higher score because yeah. it's kind of considered a critical darling mm-hmm. at this point. So yeah. good film. Maybe yeah. it's one that over time and as more people kind of saw it on TV or cable or whatever, it's grown in its stature. We have not seen Blonde yet, and at this rate, I'm not sure we're going to get to it anytime soon, but we hope to catch up with it. If you do see it or you did see it this weekend and you enjoyed it, or you didn't, we'd love to hear from you. Again, that email address is feedback at filmspotting.net. In the scene we just played, McAvoy is taking a beating from Theron, not unlike the beating Keanu Reeves took in his death match against Charlize in the most recent film spotting poll. Our question was, if you can call this a question, a beautiful people we've come to respect death match, Charlize Theron versus Keanu Reeves. Simply, only one of them is going to get to keep making movies. Who do you choose? Charlize or Keanu? How did it come out, Josh? Listeners went with Charlize by a wide margin, 60% of the vote. Zeph Wagner, he thought along the same lines I did when I voted for Charlize. He says Charlize has more potential for more great performances, whereas Keanu surely has his best work behind him. John Wick felt a bit like his last hurrah as an action star, and it's hard to imagine him as an elder statesman type actor. Maybe. Maybe there's some validity there. I don't think he is done as an action star, and I am open to seeing what he brings to the table as an elder statesman. I think he's got a leer in him. 
Really? <laughs> going to make that leap, huh? No. Emily Anderson. I have always loved Charlize. She never lost my respect, so it's hard to come to respect her again. The same cannot be said for Keanu. His Keanu-sance of the last four-ish years is as unexpected as it is delightful, which is why he is getting my vote. Also heard from Michael Loker and El Cerrito. I love you guys, and I adore the film spotting community, so forgive me for saying this, but isn't this a solid example of the crazily disproportionate standards we casually apply to women? I know it's just a goofy deathmatch poll, but let's be frank for a minute. We're pitting a woman who owns an Oscar, a Golden Globe, a SAG Award, a Silver Bear, a Spirit Award, and countless nominations against an actor with seven Razzie noms whose most memorable quote is, whoa, and we're pretending it's a horse race. I like Keanu. Keanu is cool. This poll, less cool. Well, they can't all be gems, Michael. And well, keep in mind, the results... seven Razzie noms. <laughs> yes. He never won. <laughs> Good point. Really, You're right. The, the results, results are bearing out. They are. Exactly the argument Michael's making. So. Yes. But I'm sure Michael is disappointed that it was only by a margin of 60 to 40. But Michael will try to do better next time. So for our new poll, we're looking ahead to mid-August and the return of another one of my guys, Steven Soderbergh, comma, movie director. Did Soderbergh ever really go away, Josh? I don't think anyone believed that. No. Logan Lucky opens August 18th. It is a film about two brothers who plan a heist during a NASCAR race. It includes Channing Tatum. Daniel Craig, Adam Driver, Riley Keough, and Catherine Waterston. So a formidable cast. I have not seen the trailer yet for this film, but it is among my most anticipated of the year, just based on Soderbergh and that cast. He is a filmmaker who is almost 30 years into his directing career. He has, of course, worked in just about every genre and on every scale, big budget, micro budget, TV, and it's fair to say he's got a loose collection of actors he enjoys working with the most. We have some new faces in Logan Lucky, but he's also pairing up with Channing Tatum for the fourth time. So this got our wonderful producer, Sam, thinking, who is the most valuable player among the Steven Soderbergh players? The criteria is he or she had to have starred in at least one film and played a supporting part in another. So some criteria that Sam is throwing out to consider. Versatility in various genres, in lead and supporting roles. Are they the best thing in the best of the films they are in? And with that, your options are. George Clooney is the first up, the star of Out of Sight, also one of the stars of Oceans. He was in Solaris as well, and The Good German. How about Michael Douglas, who was in Traffic and Behind the Candelabra, an HBO production? Matt Damon, he was in the Oceans films as well, also headlined The Informant, was in Contagion, and Behind the Candelabra too. Julia Roberts, another Oceans veteran, as well as Aaron Brockovich, of course, and Full Frontal. We do have Channing Tatum on this list, Haywire, Magic Mike, Side Effects, and Logan Lucky. And then, how about, let's throw in Benicio Del Toro, Shay, and Traffic. He's great in Shay. He's maybe even better in traffic. I think this one is fairly tough, though. With that said, I suggested to Sam that this was going to be one of those beatdowns. This was going to be just a hands-down winner. You I knew where our audience was going to go. Yeah, definitely. Let's you don't? No, I No, this is perplexing to me. I think it's Tatum. Really? I think it's Tatum. And I think it's maybe a little bit of recency bias with Logan Lucky coming out, but specifically... The Magic Mike films. I know Soderbergh didn't direct the second one, but he did produce it or executive produce it. And yeah, that both, first both are Magic really Mike, popular. popular, Tatum is good, beloved by a lot of cinephiles. I just feel like he's the one who's going to run away with it, and he was where my head was really going first. But Josh, the more I think about it, I actually think that I would vote. Matt Damon. That's where I'm going? Yeah, Matt Damon, yeah. because he, is, right, he is very good in Contagion, but he's great 
in Behind the Candelabra. He is really good in The Informant, a movie I don't love, but he might be the best thing about it. And actually, he is, if not the very best thing, he's in the top two or three of the best things and best performances in the Oceans movie. Oh, yeah. And forgotten, really, for being in those. It's the versatility. That's what it was for me. And, you know, I love Channing Tatum, you know. His beefy, yeah, his beefiness. beefiness. <laughs> I'm all on board. But I think if you look at the work he's done for Soderbergh, it's not nearly as varied as what Damon has done. And aside from the fact that I really like all of those Damon films that were mentioned. So we'll see what happens. Maybe Tatum runs away with it, but I'm voting for Damon. Okay. The rare film spotting pool, the rare film spotting anything where Josh and I are in complete lockstep. I'm going to have to rethink this now. (laughs) We want to know what you think. You can vote now at filmspotting.net. And if you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. Some celestial event. No. No words. No words. (laughs) To describe Poetry. I should have said the poet. So beautiful. Jodie Foster there in Contact, a Bob Zemeckis movie. Am I correct, Josh? You are correct. I know you're a big fan Very good one. of his work. And maybe the difficulty she's having there, her character, describing what she saw on that planet, whatever she visited, that's appropriate, perhaps, as we get into our list of our top five alien worlds. We couldn't even describe what the title of this top five should be. We went back and forth a little bit. We were on sci-fi visions. And then after a little bit of back and forth with a listener on Twitter today, we landed on alien worlds. Now, We've joked a little bit about how my heart maybe wasn't completely into this top five. I'm just going to ask it right now. Is it too late to switch to movie animals? Because <laughs> oh, I wasn't. I would love that. Because I wasn't there for that top five. You did it with Michael. And I'm going to contribute about the same level of insight to this list as I did to that one. You know, I could pull out my movie animals six through ten. Right. I now know. Without I know any you warning. could. So I'd love It'd to hear probably your be more interesting. <laughs> than what we're going to get to here. But in all seriousness, I did have trouble for whatever reason. And I'm generally a fan of sci-fi movies of all the films I'm sure are going to come up. You went for Valerian. I did go for Valerian. But for whatever reason, I never fully connected with this topic. And you know that's the case because I can't define it for you. The king of criteria. (laughs) I spend more time on the criteria and describing it than I do my actual picks. Yes. I don't really know what I mean by top five alien worlds, and yet I landed on five of them. So maybe, Josh, you can help me. Well, did David Hoffman help you at least? I mean, that certainly narrowed it down for me. I was Mm. sort of heading that direction anyway. I was thinking of non-Earth locations for these sci-fi visions. But yeah, Alien Worlds captures it. And non-Earth locations. That's where I ended up to. Okay, good, good. You're getting there. Okay, but what's an alien or what do we mean by alien? You can really get into that. You can carve that up. Go ahead, man. I've, <laughs> I've got my list. You, no. if, if you need to. This is what I'm saying. Hairs. I eventually just landed on five and I'm sticking with them. Okay, good. <laughs> but why don't you start us off then? Well, should we maybe set aside then? And it might be obvious at this point, but the sort of films that I saw people suggest quite a bit that would not be eligible if we're going to focus on alien worlds, non-Earth locations. So, you know, when you hear something like Metropolis, 
when Sam mentioned sci-fi visions, I thought Metropolis, yes. right? Okay. Well, no, that's like a future slash dystopia. So it's definitely not on another planet. Right. Post-apocalyptic scenarios no. would not be in play. Okay. So no La Jete, no, you know, Terry Gilliam made a La Jete remake, essentially 12 Monkeys. Mm-hmm. And of course, his Brazil, not eligible, as well as Blade Runner, THX 1138. So all those sorts of pictures. Well, other movies that wouldn't be eligible, movies in the film spotting pantheon, including the Star Wars films, at least episodes four and episodes five, mm-hmm. and 2001, A Space Odyssey, which I suppose you'd have to throw in there that Jupiter and beyond yes, is that... alien because it's certainly Absolutely. otherworldly. Yes. So not eligible. We saw a lot of suggestions come in over Twitter and on social media, and a lot of them did fall into the category of the type of movies you mentioned that we discarded. So we couldn't really benefit from a lot of those choices. I will note that it's fairly easy to come up with great locations or great planets even Mm -hmm. in sci-fi movies or space movies. But for me, it was much harder to be able to define them truly as visions. I was still kind of locked into that Valerian, almost spectacular, kind of take your breath away when you look at it version of an alien world. And there are a lot that don't really fall into that category. Let me give you an example. I know it wouldn't make your list, but one I did consider, of course, I like some of those Star Trek movies like The Wrath of Khan and The Search for Spock. Both of those films largely revolve around the planet Genesis. But I went back and watched scenes from it and refreshed my memory. And Genesis is amazing in concept and in terms of its importance to those films. You should consider it as an alien world. But I can't describe for you why I have any kind of personal reaction to the way that's shot or depicted in those films. Well, hopefully the ones that we picked will be able to do that. I mean, I think you're you're right. There are we're looking at more production design here. Yes. In some instances, costume design, perhaps. And these are the things I guess that's why I was excited about this list is because these are the things we don't always get a chance to focus on in top fives, which might be more general. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, they're not all as specific as mammals, Adam. So (laughs) don't I know it. All right, let's go. Number five for me. The alien world is not too far off. It's the moon in a trip to the moon. I couldn't use Metropolis for reasons we explained. So I wanted to go with another silent option, a trip to the moon, George Melies' 1902 short. A landmark picture for many reasons, but I'm listing it here for that moonscape. And then really, here's where costume design does come into play. Those creatures that are supposedly living on the moon, the design they went with the aliens are very bony and spindly i guess you could say they're like skeletal bugs more than anything else and looking at this again it reminded me that they resembled what we saw at american players theater midsummer night's dream the fairies were very what would you say they were they were buggy and fauna flavored right mm-hmm. they were earthy <laughs> well <laughs> i didn't taste them but it sure. was <laughs> yes and i loved how that element was echoed in these aliens in a trip to the moon you know the movies were such a young art form in 1902 that a lot of the vision here it could be described as theatrical so you have painted backdrops The detailed costuming I mentioned, also the use of elaborate props, stuff that you could see on the screen came from the stage. And and that makes a lot of sense. But 
it still works for me. You know, it still has that. Maybe it's archaic, but it's also magical simply because mm-hmm. of that. Um, it's still enthralling to me. And, uh, you know, just this vision, th- this idea of what might be on the other side of the moon that we get to see in A Trip to the Moon. So left off my list for a couple reasons. One, I was positive it would be on your list. It's a great pick. But even though I was with you in terms of looking at things as simply non-Earth Something about the moon to me just seemed not quite not alien far enough. enough. Yeah, not far enough away, a little too tethered, I guess, to the Earth. And that's also why I decided not to include or really consider something like Duncan Jones' moon mm. and that environment where we find Sam Rockwell. My list is the Solaris Memorial List. So I'll give a little bit of love to that Tarkovsky and Soderbergh film. Of course, he did the remake. My number five is one that I'm going to benefit from a little bit of listener help. We have a voicemail. Hey, film spotting. It's Jeff Milo in Ferndale, Michigan. I want to offer something about a sci-fi location or a world or a a non-Earth imagined place to explore for your top five this week. I'll preface this by saying I'm usually very cynical or uh, snooty about CGI tidal waves and that I really walked into this film with a lot of, uh, a lot of that skepticism, but I, I have to go with Star Trek Beyond's dazzling uh, star base Yorktown. Wow, that is impressive. I, she's a beauty, isn't she? What a damn monstrosity. Couldn't we just rent some space on a planet? Showing geographical favoritism among inducted Federation worlds could cause diplomatic tension. Oh, you don't think that looks tense? Looks like a damn snow globe in space just waiting to break. Oh, that's the spirit bones. It's uh, a gyroscopic, intricately woven web of of really uh, unfathomable futuristic architecture and trains and buildings and and people moving around and teleportation booths. It's a moon-sized space station that seems, uh, uh, if it isn't too high praise, geniusly laid out, you know, and it's, it's very carefully overlaid kind of Mobius strip city spaces. And to see those trains whirring by on the big screen, along with this orchestral score that just takes over for about two minutes of the film, as we're able to drink it in, it feels a little bit 2001 homage Uh, and I'll reiterate, I'm usually a CGI skeptic, but maybe something tied into Star Trek's overarching theme of hope and progress and unity kind of softened uh, my heart for this nice little tour of a cool place in space. Thank you, Jeff, for that. Certainly articulated well what is so breathtaking, I think, about that sequence in Star Trek Beyond. In fact, as they are approaching, I think before we even see it, or maybe we have just glimpsed it, you get everybody on the deck there of the Enterprise looking at it, and Bones, the notoriously cantankerous Bones, says something like, it's like a snow globe in space waiting to break. But it is, and while he views that as something kind of terrible... I think it speaks to the magic of the way that Yorktown Starbase is depicted. I think it's also hard for us maybe here in Chicago to get too excited about anything called Yorktown because we know there's like a mall not too far away called Yorktown Center. And it just seems like, well, that's Yorktown Center. But 
we're just going to have to get over that, Josh, because there is something wondrous, and Jeff used the right word, I think gyroscopic. I wouldn't have come up with that probably, but it is the best way to describe the way the Starbase sort of unfolds before our eyes. It almost feels like that because I think we're so used to these visions of bases or other worlds that are a little bit sterile and there's kind of a perfect symmetry to them and it's all about right angles and corners. But this is one of those cases where we followed the Enterprise into its docking station and then the camera just kind of flips upside down and you realize that there's this whole other kind of section and all these other sections of the Starbase that are on almost a different plane. And they seem to be almost in motion, all the different parts of this bustling, diverse place. And it does set up beyond just kind of the CGI spectacle of it and the production design. It sets up the final battle in the film. We know the stakes of that climactic scene and the possible destruction of that place because we've had the time and the care go into introducing us to it in the first place. So you mentioned earlier, maybe not connecting so much with some of the older Star Trek films and their sci-fi visions. And this is one of the things that I've appreciated and thus far why I like this new variation of Star Trek better than the older ones is the attention to these sorts of things. I think this is a good pick here, but I was considering Star Trek Into Darkness, that opening sequence, which is set on this primitive volcano Mm -hmm. planet that really gets that movie off to a rollicking start with a fascinating place that we can imagine being in. So yeah, I think this is definitely a strength of these new Star Trek films. My number four is maybe this one will be a bit of a surprise for you, Adam, if you were expecting a trip to the moon. I'm going with Miller's Planet from Interstellar. Maybe it's just that I'm on a Dunkirk high and I'm willing to overlook or forgo my usual reservations about Christopher Nolan's Interstellar and put it on this list. But there's really, there's no denying. I mean, even in our initial review, I acknowledged the visual elements to what is really Nolan's moonshot movie, right? His his bid for 2001 greatness. I love that one shot of Matthew McConaughey's spacecraft. It's about the size of a pinprick just floating and slowly moving Mm -hmm. across the expanse of Saturn and how that encompasses the screen. It really emphasizes the Hail Mary nature of his venture, that he's trying to find this habitable planet. Uh, Later on, there's that other planet. I think it's a different planet where the clouds are frozen. And so there are mountains of ice that seem to envelop him both from above and below. The most stunning, though, for me, the one I remember, is this world known as Miller's Planet. It's this watery expanse. And time is distorted Mm -hmm. here so that one hour, I think, equals seven years on Earth. And the astronauts in this sequence, they escape just before this gigantic tidal wave hits. And then when they return, get back, they realize 23 years have elapsed on Earth. So there's both a visual and a psychological wallop to this sequence. And it's very much rooted in something we're responding to visually, the design of this immense Wave. So one thing Interstellar was not lacking was sci-fi vision. I have to give it credit for that. So I definitely considered that, as everyone knows, I'm a much bigger fan of Interstellar than you. But as much as the visual design is so crucial to what we're experiencing as viewers, it's also this invisible force, as you mentioned, time. And mm-hmm. I'll say it for the third time, I think, this episode, if everyone's playing the film spotting drinking game at home, you're getting hammered, take a shot, because I'm going to say stakes again. But as I think about 
any movie I've seen in the past five years or so in terms of making me feel the weight of characters' actions and decisions. I don't know that anything hit me quite as hard as everything they were doing on that planet Mm -hmm. and the time that was passing, recognizing what it really meant in the scope of time. The the value value of time. I mean, we can all relate to that. We can all relate to the people they've left behind and how every moment matters. And in this case, every moment is actually hours and days and weeks and months and years. And it is striking for that reason, among others. Oh, you're not prepared for this. Yeah, yes. Got the survival skills of a Boy Scout troop. Well, we got this far in our brains, farther than any human in history. Well, not far enough. And now we're stuck here to the woman anyone left on earth to save. I'm counting every minute, same as you, Cooper. My number four alien world is a nostalgia choice, maybe because it's the first real alien world on screen I think I can remember, and it is the planet Krypton from Superman, the movie, Richard Donner's film. Now, a huge, huge part of this is simply, I think, and music, you already heard Jeff mention it, that can play a big part in having a strong reaction to any scene and any visual, but that John Williams score at the beginning of Superman once we get past the opening credits and we actually get that introduction to the planet Krypton, that is incredibly powerful and just thrilling, I think is maybe the better word. But the camera is sort of traveling forward through space and it passes this giant red supernova. Then it goes through that and it moves on to this this blue light. And then through the blue light, we then finally spy this little civilization that has sprouted up there on this icy terrain. And it really didn't hit me until today. It certainly didn't hit me when I was four or five and watching it. But that contrast of the red and the blue, those first colors that we see on screen, the red and blue that really defines Superman and his costume. And later, when we then get to the planet and we see Jarell and Superman's mother sending him off that pod it's so striking that he's in that little spacecraft and he's got that red and blue kind of blanket essentially or something that he's sitting on everything else in that world is gray and black and white that that shining bright whiteness of Jarell's outfit is all I really remember but then that color stands out beyond I think just the visual sense that you get looking at Krypton. It's really, everything else is just so eerie, especially as a young kid watching that, where it's sort of familiar. We get this courtroom scene, and we have these judges, and we've got a lawyer arguing against these criminals, but it's like nothing we've ever seen, really, in our day-to-day life here, of course, on Earth. And then when that sort of dome opens after the verdict has been handed down in Zod and his two cohorts there are sent off to the phantom zone i just thought what could be worse of a punishment than than whatever that is i mean it blew my mind when i was a kid so krypton is my number four well there's something so tactile about those settings you know obviously the pre-cgi era and we'll get into some cgi talk here and how it can still be a good thing but yeah when you think back on those you know they're sets right but there's still some there's such 
ingeniously designed and effective sets that that's okay and almost part of the fun now Mm -hmm. in looking back on them. All right, for my number three, this was a pick that was suggested by a listener on Twitter, Randall Collette, and he said, exempting the obvious, alien, Star Wars, etc., the small floating planet in the fountain remains one of my favorite images on film. So Randall's calling it a floating planet. I'm going to go with a biobubble in Darren Aronofsky's 2006 picture. This is where Hugh Jackman is playing three different men, although in watching this again and doing some research, I realized there's an alternate reading of this film where he's actually playing two, and the third guy is a dream. But at any rate... On the surface, it seems like he's playing a 16th century conquistador and then a contemporary scientist and then a 26th century cosmonaut. They're all chasing some variation on the fountain of youth. Now, the latter character, the cosmonaut, he travels in this floating space bubble and it's a biosphere of sorts because there's this tree in it that he believes to be essentially the tree of life. Here's what I wrote about the fountain in my 2006 review. Aronofsky speeds back and forth across centuries with the virtuosity of 2001-era Stanley Kubrick, and it's all you can do to hang on. Cling to the repeated visual motifs, the picture is gorgeous to look at, and the recurring musical theme, a grand piece by Clint Mansell, and you'll be okay. I do think that tree is, it's similar to Kubrick's monolith this tree in the biosphere because it works as a visual anchor, right? Something to to tie together this particular sci-fi vision. So Randall's right. Like when, when someone says the fountain, this strange bubble is what immediately hmm. comes to mind for me. When someone says the fountain, I think back to it being discussed here on the show, I think with then co-host, now producer Sam Van Hallgren and us both going for it nice. quite a bit. Good. Though I'm not sure as much as you went for it, because I know you love that film, yeah. and I remember almost nothing about it. It seems so long ago. You got remember the bubble. I don't. You don't remember no, him floating I don't. along no. in this bubble with no. the tree? I don't, and that's why it really wasn't in contention for my list, unfortunately. <laughs> my number three, Josh, is from Interstellar, but okay. is a different you location. Go? I went with another... Starbase and it's Cooper Station. This is at the end of the film. I'm not really going to give anything away, but if you haven't seen Interstellar, I suppose maybe you'd want to stop listening. But this is the space station that Matthew McConaughey's character wakes up in and he gets out of a hospital bed, goes to the window, and I just love the image of him looking out the window and seeing a baseball game being played. So instantly it feels familiar. It feels like Earth. He might even think he is on Earth. And then the camera is stationary as we watch a batter, it's like a Little League game, hit a fly ball deep to left field. And the camera then just kind of suddenly tilts up. And we realize, looks like mostly from McConaughey's point of view, that this is not your typical baseball field. There's really nothing typical about this place at all. In fact, everything's sort of inverted and the ball as it flies out to left field actually kind of keeps just going up in the air and somehow manages to break a window that's above it, it seems. And that's because there is this gyroscopic effect here again to this Cooper station. And it all ties back. It's never really gone into great detail, but it all ties back. I think we're able to presume to the conundrum that was the central problem of this film, trying to solve this gravity equation so they could come up with a solution to the problem of blight 
that was destroying Earth. And actually, I did a little bit of Googling today and found that it's based on something called the O'Neill Cylinder. This is what Wikipedia says about it anyway, that this American physicist, Gerard K. O'Neill, wrote a book in 1976 called The High Frontier, Human Colonies in Space. And he proposed this idea of a cylinder that actually consisted of two counter-rotating cylinders. He proposed that rotating them in opposite directions would cancel out any gyroscopic effects that would otherwise make it difficult to keep them aimed towards the sun. So basically, it would provide a sense of artificial gravity. Nolan, going back to actual science, or at least theoretical science there from that physicist. And I just remember having that breathtaking moment when the camera tilted up and being so fascinated by that environment and being fascinated too later by seeing this ultra modern, obviously, space station that contained the remnants of the old world. They'd actually built on it these sets as museum displays almost of the earth that they came from and the farmhouse and the farm that they lived and worked on. So Cooper Station for me is what stood out the most from Interstellar. All right. A lot of interstellar love so far on this list. You ready to talk Star Wars, Adam? You knew it was coming. It depends. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know you're going the prequel loaded, route. It's so. a loaded question. So well, no. No, my first question is Return of the Jedi would be eligible then, right? Not it would in the be. Pantheon. Okay. Because I really I definitely think Jabba the Hutt's Palace would be a good alien world slash sci-fi vision. Even the surrounding desert of Tatooine and Return of the Jedi. How about Endor? I mean, these are both places I tried to like recreate on vacations as a kid. If I was in the woods or <laughs> we were in the dunes of Michigan on Did Lake you bring Michigan. Your own Ewoks? Uh, no, no Ewoks. Didn't even bring the dog to play Ewok. Okay. I just had to imagine that. But yeah, I think I think those are fantastic sci-fi visions from the original three films. But I'm gonna go prequel. I'm gonna go prequel on this list, Adam. Not just to bug you. But because I do think that one of the things I admire about those films is their world building, the envisioning of alien worlds and how they connected with the previous films. In particular here for this list, I'm going with the Coliseum on Geonosis comes from Star Wars Episode 2. Attack of the Clones. Stay with me here, Adam. Okay. This is where Anakin, Padme, and Obi-Wan, I want to remind you. I know this isn't fresh for you. You couldn't even remember the bubble in the fountain, for goodness sakes. No. This is where they're essentially fed to these three monstrous alien creatures while a crowd of Geonosians watches. Now, the Geonosians. Let's get into this, Adam. Do we have to? I don't know if I'm even pronouncing that right, but I'm sure I'll be corrected. I mean, I'm good. They're these winged insect creatures that create these nests in the rocky colonies. They really, they could be descendants of Meliasis aliens that I started with here in a trip to the moon. They have a similar look to them. Okay, so I agree. The prequels, they've got too much CGI and green screen overall, as opposed to actual sets and locations. But here in this sequence... I do think the technology is brilliantly used, especially when it erupts and the band of Jedi come to the rescue and then fighting breaks out all across the Coliseum. Here's why. So the Geonosians, these bug aliens, they flutter up in the air in the background. And what that does, it suddenly gives the space a sense of depth. That's one of the things that bad CGI scapes. They don't have that, all right? And and you get it here, mm -hmm. very much so. There's also camera movements in this scene. So they're not just standing in front of a green screen. The camera moves up over the edge of the Coliseum at that point, again, creates depth, and then it falls down. At another point, it follows characters jumping into the space. So there's a lot of use of not only the CGI technology, but how cameras can be employed to create the sense of being there in the moment. And this sequence, it does end as well with one of the more mythic moments in the prequels. This is 
Django Fett's beheading. Uh, and then we get that shot, that great shot of his son Boba holding the helmet and, and really looking face to face into his future. I, I just one of those sequences that connects with the original films in a powerful way. I, I think one thing George Lucas did manage to do with these prequels is not only sustain, but but build out, build upon this sci-fi vision that he originally created with the first film. So Coliseum Battleon, Geonosis, Adam. Geonosis is the planet. Don't okay. forget that. <laughs> well, That's where I'm going. I don't know how I can be critical of that choice when my number two as unsubstantiated as it's about to be Sith. is the planet You're going revenge of the Sith. No, I probably would have been better off if I did. I'm going with the planet Mongo from a film. I know you haven't seen because it came up. How I don't have know, I not four seen or a film five episodes with ago? Mongo in it. Flash. Ah, uh, Gordon. Oh, that's how flash Gordon from 1980, a planet that basically seems to be defined by these trippy, swirling, constantly swirling, multicolored, ever-changing multicolored clouds. Josh, it's a planet that has hawkmen. Sounds I mean, good. They're, they're I'm, in, men. I'm in so far. They're men who have outfits on that make them look like hawks, and they have wings, and they can fly. How about when Flash goes to the planet? I've never heard anyone so unconvinced of their own <laughs> oh, pick. Oh, yeah. But proceed. <laughs> well, this is all I got. He goes to the section of the planet Arborea. I bet you can't guess what that section of the planet's like. Lots of trees. Okay. There's lots of trees in Arborea. Do, do the Hawkmen nest in the trees? No, they don't. But Timothy Dalton is there. Initially what? arrival to Flash Gordon. And he and all his men, because they live amongst the trees, are dressed up like Robin Hood type people, I guess, on this planet. And it's all ruled by Max von Sydow's Ming the Merciless. At this point, you're just making fun of the list. Do you, Ming the Merciless... Ruler of the universe, take this earthling, Dale Arden, to be your empress of the hour. Of the hour, yes. You promise to use her as you will? Certainly. Not to blast her into space? Until such time as you grow weary of her. I do. I do not. Yeah, yeah. Mongo. Flash Gordon. Loved it. Okay. Loved it when I was a kid. Well, I haven't seen it, as we've said, but I still feel safe to say that Revenge of the Sith would have been a better pick. I won't argue. All right. We're at number one. You're, you're going to get even more excited here, Adam. Let me play apologist once more. The main reason I count myself among the <laughs> small number of Avatar defenders. Oh, I knew it was coming. It's not an easy life. Those of us who like Avatar... It's because I think the movie does a masterful job of what this list is all about. What we've been talking about, envisioning an entire alien world in both vastness and detail. Let me start with that detail, okay? I was on board early on with Avatar because I noticed how intricate the attention to the animation was going to be. That the sunlight on this planet delicately filters through the thin upper tips of the ears of the Na'vi. These blue-skinned, much-maligned aliens of James Cameron's blockbuster. So... Just noticing that they were going to bother to put that in, I thought, well, how, how rich is the whole expanse of this planet going to be? And sure enough, the animators, they build out this world of Pandora from there. So we get these lemur-like creatures with four arms that are swinging among these huge skyscraper-sized trees. There are these feathery spiral plants that are as big as cars, but then they instantly shrink at the slightest touch. 
bioluminescent seeds drifting in the air, settling on branches. And then even the ground is alive here. You know, you step on it and it emits this pulsing blue glow. So my highlight of all of this is when the Navi, they climb these trailing vines to reach Pandora's floating mountains. There are these massive forested boulders that are somehow drifting upwards in the sky. They, they look like balloons. And the camera soars through the air, peers over these yawning precipices. Again, not being content to just put up a green screen and throw animation on it, but put us in that environment. It really is dizzying, probably one of the very few smart uses of 3D that I've experienced I know Avatar is an easy target. I mean, the aliens are blue. Probably not the best choice right there from the start. But for me, at least as a sci-fi vision, as an alien world, it's it's pretty hard to beat. You have something against Smurfs, Josh? Yeah, I didn't see those either. (laughs) Well, as much as I hate Avatar, and that's why I didn't consider it, Oh, I, I, I do you were remember say, as much as I hate it, it's my number one. It is as not well. my number one. But I thought about it. I did think about it because when I do think about that film, the vision of Pandora is certainly not one of the flaws with that movie. And in fact, what I really think about more than anything is the sequence where that one really bland character gets on some kind of creature and is soaring through the sky, and that really does become dizzying in a way that is a lot of fun. It's the most fun I had with that film. Maybe if Josh Cameron had just focused on all the yawning precipices and just gotten rid of the storyline completely, I would have really gone for Avatar. It's no Valerian and he's no Dane DeHaan. I'll give you that. Agreed. (laughs) On that, we agree. And that brings us to my number one, which is a boring choice because it's a film that came up pretty recently when we did our top five religious experiences at the movies, and I won't get into that moment again, but it is The City from Alex Proyas's Dark City. And I tried to exclude it, but really it just is my number one. And I'm going to read a quote from the production designer on the film who described the thinking behind The City this way. The movie takes place everywhere, and it takes place nowhere. It's a city built of pieces of cities, a corner from one place, another from someplace else. So you don't really know where you are. A piece will look like a street in London, but a portion of the architecture looks like New York. But the bottom of the architecture looks again like a European city. You're there, but you don't know where you are. It's like every time you travel, you'll be lost. And if that was the goal, they certainly succeeded with the movie. And I think that that whole idea of it being built on pieces of cities reflects as well the notion of memory and pieces of our memory that form these vivid spots in our minds and these locales that we can sometimes romanticize. And that sense of familiarity, I think, ties to our experience with the film as viewers, too, where you mentioned Metropolis earlier. There's a lot in the visual design of Dark City that will strike a lot of viewers as reminiscent of Metropolis. And there's certainly a lot that resembles many film noirs that we've all seen. So with that in mind, to us, It's lodging or dislodging things from our memory. It feels shockingly familiar and simultaneously completely foreign. And I think then as a viewer, we're always in the exact same headspace as the main character, Murdoch, who is searching for the only thing he can remember after waking up in a bathtub with amnesia and having these really strange creatures with powers called the strangers chasing after him. So with him, with us watching, something isn't right, and yet it feels like we know it. It feels like we should almost be comfortable there. And that constant conflict, I think, is what makes the city so striking. 
I love that description the production designer gave of the architecture. That's exactly right. You feel that. And yeah, I thought about Dark City. I couldn't quite tell, and I still don't really know, is that, you know, a not a post-apocalypse, but is it some sort of dystopia? Is it here on Earth future? Or is it another It's not world? here on Earth. Yeah, it's, it's just... <laughs> you, did, it's, you didn't listen closely enough to my religious experiences. It's, <laughs> it's just so bizarre. So yeah. it was definitely one I thought about and, and couldn't quite locate it enough to put it on the list. Okay. Those are our top five alien worlds. Josh, do you have any honorable mentions? I think they've all been mentioned. 2001, which is in the Pantheon, of course. Contact, which we began these lists with. And then Alien and Aliens, I think both do a good job. It's it's more xenomorph-related for me of these sci-fi visions, not quite so much the entire world. And Solaris, which is your memorial pick mm-hmm. for this list. Absolutely, that sentient planet in the Tarkovsky film is one of the all-time great sci-fi visions. Yeah, I definitely thought about LV-426 from Alien and Aliens and some of the locations we see in Prometheus. And I thought this was an interesting one. And I'm sorry to the Twitter follower who suggested it. I don't have it in front of me. But what about Melancholia in Lars von Trier's Melancholia? Ooh, interesting. We don't actually ever... I think, see what's happening on that planet. Hmm. But it is this alien world, if you will, this other celestial force that is approaching Earth and about to wreak havoc on life as all those characters know it. So it's one I thought was a pretty inspired choice. We'd love to know your picks. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. And that's our show at filmspotting.net is where you can find over 12 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in our archives. While you're there, you can vote in our current poll question, looking ahead to the return of Steven Soderbergh and Logan Lucky a couple weeks from now. We want to know who you think is the MVP of the Steven Soderbergh players. If you haven't already, check out the Film Spotting family of podcasts, The Next Picture Show, and Film Spotting SVU. Find both in Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast app. Out wide this weekend, the Emoji Movie. And yeah. Taking the kids? My kids want to see it. Your All kids right. are old enough to know better. Yeah. <laughs> I have kids who aren't. They're still Emoji Movie age. This is true. Have you seen the trailer for it? Um, I can barely stand the billboards. Okay, but I saw the trailer, and I have to say that even though I'm not excited to see it in any way, shape, or form, I'm going to, just based on the trailer, give the screenwriters some credit for coming up with a way to build a storyline around the concept of emojis. Wait, what? They found something. Did you already they read? They did. Did you already read this synopsis? That's no, here? no. Gene, a multi-expressional emoji, sets out on a journey to become a normal emoji. Yeah. Is yeah. this what you're referring to? Yeah. They found a way to make it work, Josh. Let me know how that turns out. (laughs) Okay, I will. Atomic Blonde is out. Charlize Theron with John Wick co-director David Leach. It co-stars James McAvoy. The Last Face also opening the other Charlize Theron movie this weekend. From all reports, a fiasco from director Sean Penn. And Detroit, Catherine Bigelow's new movie about the Detroit riots in the summer of 1967. Next week on the show, we will discuss Detroit and share our top five films of 1967. If you have a favorite movie from that year. And what I'd love to hear, because this is something we do with these year-by-year lists, Josh, is we tend to, or I like to, consider the movies that right now I think are the best films of that year, and then also the films that I thought were the best in that year. Now, neither of us were on this planet in 1967, but I'm guessing there are people listening who were. And I'd love to know, in that year, what were your favorite films send us an mp3 file or leave us a short voicemail at 
312-264-0744, and we may use it in next week's show. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show would not go. Our production assistant is Jeremy Wellhausen. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.